I came over to lingerie, and there I see Karina seeing her. She says, what are you doing? You look like you're looking for a job. I said, I am. She got me into a room. She interviewed me. She says, what are you looking into for? Into the room. Just like it sounds that. like you're being, she just being said, tortured or something. Come with me. Yeah. You're not applying to anywhere else. I want you on my team. I love your personality. You know how Karina that, was. That, she takes me into the HR room. She locks me in there. Like, okay. <laughs> so I said, okay. But I don't know if the locking people in a room is a great strategy. You know, so she was, she was actually great. She, she said, Nikki, if you're here to be successful, you're in the right place. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 10 of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Wow, I can't believe we made it to 10 episodes. So, so far, so good. We're going to keep going. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we're going to stop by our Merrick Park store in Florida to talk with Nikki Oliva, an employee in the lingerie department that's making a profound impact through one of Nordstrom's lesser known programs. So I had an experience with a customer last week. She felt very ugly. She believed that she was too old. She tells me, well, you know, I, I don't want to buy this clothes. I said, why don't you put it on? Let me give you the right items for you to look pretty. And you're going to see how gorgeous you're going to look after. But before that, I want to introduce you to author and co-founder of Bonobos, Andy Dunn. As one of the earliest pioneers in the now flourishing world of e-commerce, Andy Dunn paved the way with his exclusively online apparel brand, Bonobos. At a time when most people thought it was impossible to sell clothes through a computer, Andy and co-founder Brian Spaley built an internet-driven, direct-to-consumer business model that set the stage for countless brands to follow. However, Andy would eventually discover that in order to continue growing, they could no longer ignore the benefits of showing up in a physical space. And though the self-described illusions of creating something that had never been done before may seem like a prerequisite for any entrepreneur, for Andy, it was the perfect hiding place for something much more serious. In his book titled Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind, Andy details his closeted struggles with a mental illness that quite literally threatened to destroy his life. Andy has worked hard to find balance and with the help of family, friends, doctors, and understanding business partners, he is grateful to be in a place where he can share his story with those who are battling alongside him. So let's get into it. Andy Dunn. How we doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm eight days from book launch and, you know. God, congratulations. I mean, I'm seeing you all over the place. It's great. I know. I'm spamming people. Have you enjoyed it? Has it been fun? I mean, it's got to be completely different, right? Doing a book and all everything that goes with that. The part of this that has been getting this story out has been amazing. The business of the book world, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but it's a little stressful. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's true. All right. Well, look, and I'm super happy to be talking to you today. Andy Dunn, you know, we've known each other for, gosh, has it been what, a little over 10 years? Yeah, at least. Yeah. I was just looking at that. We we made an investment in, in Bonobos, started working with you guys in 2012, as, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. We've known each other for a while, but it's it's been fascinating for me to see kind of this next chapter in your life where you've you've written a book. It's called Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind, which the title in it's of itself, I think, is going to give our listeners a lot of indication about where this conversation is going to go. So I just want to start by saying, I mean, the elephant in the room here to me, what section in a bookstore would you go to find this book? Because it touches on yeah. several topics. Yeah, the book is about a closeted journey that I've fought and been on with a mental illness called bipolar disorder type one over the last 22 years. You know, I was diagnosed when I was a senior in college and went through a lot of the ups and downs that uh, mood disorder entail. And then I went through the entrepreneurial journey, 
which itself is known for its ups and downs. So, you know, when we were talking about the book with a potential publisher editor, the guy I ended up working with, originally he rejected it. And he said, if Andy wants to write a chest-thumping, self-aggrandizing tale of entrepreneurial success, then I'm not interested at all. But if he wants to tell an unvarnished story about mental health and mental illness told through the lens of an entrepreneur, then there could be something here. So to your point, you know, I hope we show up in the business section and I hope we show up in the mental health section Yeah, because it's really a book at the intersection of the two. So when you started out with this idea for a book, I mean, what was your spirit of intent about the story you wanted to get out? Was it both things? It was an entrepreneur story and it was also the personal struggles you went through with mental health? It's a great question. I knew I had this ghost in the closet for 20 years and I felt I felt tired of hiding. You know what I mean? And I think coming out of a win under my belt, so to speak, with, you know, Bonobos was acquired by Walmart back in 2017. I worked there for a couple of years. I felt like there was maybe a, you know, airbrushed Instagram friendly version of my story that was the one that had been put out there. And it's so far diverged from the real story, which I think has got a lot more nuance and texture and really redemptive power to it. And I felt like a fraud a little bit, that there was this one side of the story, but not the other. So partly it was to resolve that feeling. Partly it was because I was just sick of feeling ashamed of it. You know, I had internalized this illness and diagnosis as something I had done wrong. You know, it was something that was unspeakable in our family and amongst my friends. And shame is imputed by what we can't talk about. And so there was a little bit of like, I want to expunge that shame. And then there was the last piece of it, which is I thought the story would be helpful to other people. So like, you've been super candid in the way that you talk about it. But someone like me on the other side, I want to be respectful and address these things in appropriate terms. So why don't we just kind of start there? What What's the most constructive and respectful way for someone to engage in a conversation about this stuff? Yeah, I think that the first thing that's worth just drawing out is the difference between the identity and the illness. And I think mental illness, we have a way of equating the individual with the illness. And we see it in our language. For example, I only learned recently that I'm not bipolar. I have bipolar disorder. And so if you think about it, we would never say, oh, she is cancer. (laughs) No, no, she has cancer. You know, no one is their illness. They have it. And so if we can pull apart the identity from the illness, I think that's kind of step one, which is to say also that when someone discloses this, I certainly felt this way. I always assumed it would be the entire frame on who I was. Did it have to change the narrative of how you described yourself and how you identified yourself as you've worked through these last couple decades? Yeah, look, I think because I was an entrepreneur, I couldn't talk about this. How would I be able to raise capital? How would I be able to attract people? But I now have inverted that narrative in my own mind and realized so many people in the startup community deal with this. I had a great conversation this week with the venture capital fund that backed me uh, in Bonobos. They backed me again in my new company. And they basically said, look, this is really common in our portfolio, right? Like we're talking about it more and more. And so I guess in a way I've come around to not needing to separate these identities to hide one part of me on the, for the benefit, you know, professional benefit and recognize I want to bring my full self to the table. And over the last eight days, I feel for the first time in my life that I'm fully known you know, for, for those who are curious with publishing the book. And I wish that for everyone. Like, might we all be so fortunate us to be fully known? Now, you touch on this in your book, but maybe you can talk a little bit about when you first had some issues with mental health. And even at those first episodes, when did it become part of this is who I am? And this is something I'm going to have to be intentional about. Yeah. So, look, I was diagnosed when I was 20. I was a senior in college. Um, the experience of becoming psychotic, of mania, it's characterized for those of you listening that don't know about this by delusions of grandeur, messianic zeal, cycling of moods between euphoria and sadness, laughing, crying, irritable, angry, 
elevated speech, talking a mile a minute, all kinds of ideas that may or may not be rooted in the rational world. So how did that come and out then, when you were 20? Did, did, was there an episode? Was there like a moment where something happened that made this all come to light? Yeah, it's kind of like, um, I would call it like climbing the volcano. You are not aware that you're ascending up, up in a way. And there's a there's a stage of it that's called hypomania, which is on the journey. And I would call that like on a scale of 10, if 10 is mania, you know, kind of seven, eight, nine is just like a really good mood becoming an excitably good mood. And that's the tricky thing about mania is so frequently the triggers are positive things in our lives. So I had, you know, fallen in love for the first time and I was all excited about that. I was using all kinds of different substances, you know, alcohol, pot, mushrooms, ecstasy. You know, I was a, I was a college kid gone off the rails. And so as I ascended upwards, at some point, we think I stopped sleeping for four nights. And you had no real self-awareness that this was happening to you? Is this only something that you recognize in hindsight as you look back on it? Like, what was it like in the moment? No, it's like that. David Foster Wallace speech at Kenyon College where this big fish swims by two little fish and says to the two little fish, how's the water and keep swimming. And then one of the little fish looks at the other one and says, what's water? Which is to say, when you're in it, you by definition can't know. You, you don't know once you're in that manic state. And so the only way down and out is hospitalization once you've hit mania and my family did a brilliant job of intervening. They figured it out. My friends got me to the hospital, spent a week in the psychiatric ward at the hospital where my mom worked no less and where I had had part-time jobs, which only added to the humiliation and shame later. Yeah. Because I knew that everyone knew and my friends knew. And I spent a week there and on the way I got this diagnosis and it hit me like a sledgehammer. Like, wait, what's that? I was a college kid last week having a good time and now what? And it's it's a forever diagnosis, you know? It's not something with the cure, it's only something that you can manage and cope with. But you weren't, I mean, to that point though, you weren't just some average college kid. I mean, as I understand it, knowing you, you were an achiever. I mean, you there was an, an identity around you around achievement and success, right? I mean, you're going to Stanford. I mean, you're, you're obviously have been a pretty purposeful and accomplished young person. Yeah, I was doing okay. I was doing well, I guess you would say. And I think, you know, growing up had been a quote unquote gifted student. You know, I skipped a grade, straight A's in high school and all that. College was a little bit more of a, of a rebalancing between like academic life and social life. But I, I definitely felt like it was under my control. The achievement was a direct correlation between effort and outcome. Right. And this diagnosis just upended and uprooted that. And what's so sad about it is the diagnosis was so hard to take on that I just denied it. I just buried it. We all found a way in the family to say, you know what? It isn't bipolar disorder. It's the drug use. Oh, so they thought it was a moment in time. You all thought like, yeah, this happened, but this was an episodic thing. And I'm just going to turn the page and move on. Exactly. It, the discharging psychiatrist even said, you know, it is a differential diagnosis, which is to say it can evolve with new data. And so she said, if Andy doesn't have another episode for the next five years, it may be that this was a, you know, one-off psychotic event. And then the worst thing happened, which was nothing. <laughs> nothing happened. You know, I was largely asymptomatic for a decade. So you weren't on any kind it's, of medication or anything after you left the hospital? That was it? I was a punk. I, I did one visit to the outpatient, you know, psychiatrist, and I told my mom I was never going back. I gave him some kind of a lecture about how I didn't have this. Within a few months, I went off my medication because I felt like it was, you know, all too common story that it was numbing who I was. And for a decade, I was fine, which is what, sh you know, not fine in that life wasn't harder. It didn't have its ups and downs, but I was neither manic nor catatonically depressed for a decade. So what were you thinking about at that time as you're a young person and you're coming out of school, like, what your sense of ambition was and what you were going to try to accomplish. Did it evolve and change based on the times? Or did you have a pretty clear idea in your mind what you were trying to accomplish? No, I, I didn't have a clear idea. I would say my first three professional experiences were all aimed at not limiting what the future might look like. So I was trying to, you know, buy as many options as I could 
and not get narrowed in. I'm not quite sure where that came from, but I came to understand consulting as a way to get, you know, more of a broad-based skill set. And then I made my way into the private equity world and I figured, okay, I can kind of stay connected to being a business generalist, but learn more from, let's call it like the managing the balance sheet, you know, how, how companies are financed and management teams and all that. And I learned something important after those first two jobs, which is at both jobs, I was told I was the worst person that they'd ever promoted. <laughs> so at, at Bain, they said, well, we think you'll be good at managing other people. And then at the private equity fund I worked for, they said like, look, you're, you weren't a great associate, but we think you might make a good principal. So we'll sponsor your business school if you want. So I went off to Stanford. I was fortunate to get in. And my basic thought was like, I need to stop working for someone else because I'm not that employable and I need to build something on my own. So that was the only kind of instinct that I had in 2005 when I was like, I need to get in business for myself because I'm just not an awesome employee. What was driving you to achieve when you were you know, out there in the professional world? It's such an awesome question. I always assumed... I wouldn't make a good entrepreneur because I'm not that money driven. At least I didn't used to be. I feel like having some money has kind of corrupted me in some ways where I, I just spend more time thinking about it now, or I guess I don't want to lose it and I want to invest it well and figure out what good we can do with it. But I always just loved people. And I think the thing for me about consumer that really lit me up to go into the world of consumer was you get to love two cohorts of people. You get to love your team and the people you're building something with, and you get to love the people that you're serving directly as individuals. And so I guess, Pete, what I did was I paid attention to what what kind of lit me up. And so when I went to Stanford, I said, I'm going to focus on consumer and I'm going to go as early stage as I can. Um, and that through a bunch of, you know, twists and turns led me to Brian Spaley and Brian had this idea for a better fitting pair of men's pants. And I had this dumb idea of let's sell them online. And that's how Bonobos was born. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So you were really on the early end, I suppose, or when all that stuff was starting to happen, the opportunities presented through e-commerce, right? That just never had existed before. And it, essentially how it turned the entire retail or wholesale business completely inside out, which, you know, I've lived through on, on my end. So tell me what it was like. On your end, as a person's come around, like, okay, I want to develop this product and a brand. I guess yeah. my point is there wasn't really a blueprint for this, right? No one had done it. It was really different. And what really intrigued me was when I talked to people about it, early days of pitching Bonobos as a concept, they would say, well, you can extend a brand online, but you can't build one online. And I remember thinking, why? Like, why would that be true? And then the question that was so fascinating was, well, who's done it? And I loved that I didn't have an answer because it gave me a sense of purpose to be the first company that could prove it. And if you now look at the whole direct consumer ecosystem, including public companies like Warby Parker, Allbirds, or Figs, there's this whole ecosystem that now exists, and we got to be on the tip of the spear of that. So how did you go from a concept like, okay, there's these great pants and we're going to sell them and we're going to do it on the internet. I mean, it seems like there had to be a fair amount of time between development of that idea and actually the ability to execute and sell it. So what was your first foray into, first of all, design and manufacturing a product and then secondly, getting it out there in the marketplace? I was trying to borrow from analogous companies that I thought were doing something we could learn from. And then there was a question of like, well, how do you sell soft goods over the internet? And there wasn't, I mean, you remember this, this was 15 years ago. There wasn't necessarily a universal acknowledgement that fashion and home goods were moving online. You know, I think their eBay Motors was big. So it was like, well, we're selling cars. And I remember people saying like, apparel's just not going to work that way. Well, we'd, you know, we'd kind of convinced ourselves of that. And that's when we would talk about people like Amazon or whoever, whomever, we would be dismissive. Like, well, okay. I mean, they can sell car batteries and sleeping bags and wrenches or something or books, but they're not going to be able to sell fashion apparel. It's a fascinating thing to unpack, Pete, at some point, because I noticed it at Bonobos two years later where there were certain competitors coming up. And whenever I noticed employee dismissiveness, I felt like that's the wrong emotion. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it is contempt or disdain. The moment you're looking down and I'm not saying this was happening at Nordstrom, but 
you're, you've used the right word, which is like when someone's doing something, get really curious. And for me, what I was curious about, if we follow that feeling at the time was this company Zappos. And I was studying like, how do they do it? How do they sell, you know, Nikes and Birkenstock or whoever, where normally in this category, everyone says you got to try your shoes on. Right. And what I noticed was they had really great customer service and great customer service policies. I looked at Zappos and I said, okay, I know what we can do at Bonobos. We basically need to mash up, you know, Ralph Lauren and Zappos, build talent across those kinds of companies, put them under one roof. And of course it wasn't easy, but that's what we sought out to go do. Yeah. But even that in of, of itself, if you go back in time, that was not really ever heard of. Again, I would imagine from the inception of this idea, did you guys view yourself as a wholesaler or a brand or did you view yourself as a retailer? I was convinced that we were something different than what we were at our core, which is at our core, we were, whether we liked it or not, a retailer. And I love to talk about now this like line between fantasy and reality. Like I love, I love startups because they're the direct collision of fantasy and reality. You know, you get to be delusional only for so long before you have to prove it. And I think Pete, I was delusional for the first five years and that I thought we were a tech company as much as we were a retail company. And then I did something extremely unhelpful, which is I convinced ourselves, myself, our board, our team, that we were going to actually build great e-commerce software since the e-commerce software world was dizzying, was confusing. And I did, I made a classic mistake that you can see entrepreneurs make. We see corporate executives make it too, which is like this, there's nothing good out there. We're going to do it ourselves. (laughs) And so we opened up, a, you know, an office in Silicon Valley and we recruited 20 engineers and data scientists type folks. So you, it seems like you had kind of an outsized risk tolerance because I can only think about for myself. And you think about me, I'm, I'm a guy that's been always attached to a business that has existed, you know, the trains on the tracks or something happening. The entrepreneur story is much different. I mean, it, there's got to be an enormous amount of risk. And does that tie into your mental... How, how, again, I'm looking for the right words to say this. You know, the 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 mania or the mental issues go that you were going it. through is that did that kind of formula contribute to this? Like you just had an outsized risk envelope. Pete, it's such a great question. I think yes. I think if you, we talk specifically about hypomania, which is let's call it the the productive zone where you can get a pro- prodigious amounts of things done where you have a really, um, I did have like a contagious positive energy to attract talent and capital, lots of new ideas, flashes of new ideas. That zone is, is very helpful and is virtually indistinguishable from an entrepreneur who's having a good day. And as my doctor says, like, might we all be controllably hypomanic every day? You know, might we all have access to that state of flow? And so when it comes to risk-taking, yes, it is, um, there is evidence that you are more inclined to risky behavior when you're in that state. And so if, like me, you know, I was in that state more often, I would be more excitable and I would have these new ideas and I would put those, I would try to find a way to put those in the company. Uh, but what I would also add, with a company like Nordstrom, where it's been around, it's endured, there's more to risk. You know what I mean? Well, like in some ways, this, you're right. There, yes. There's a legacy. There is a responsibility. You know, in this case, your case, there's a multi-generational family legacy of what's been built. And so you're trying to protect what you've got at the same time as you're trying to, you know, grow it. And part of protecting it is protecting it from new threats. But how much capital and focus can you put against that? When your company's two years old... There's not much to protect there. You know what I mean? Right. So if you combine a higher proclivity for risk-taking with less to risk, then you get things like entrepreneurs inside of a pants company thinking they're going to build a software company. Yeah. Did you guys literally have a narrative where you were a digitally native evangelist? This is the future. And then all of a sudden there was that tipping point, that realization of, Huh, unless we've got incredibly huge scale along the lines of a Amazon or something, we're going to need other methods to be able to do that. You know, it's one of these things where it's fun to reminisce that we met in 2012 because we were five years in. And I would say five years into the 10 year journey was around the time I had the wake up call. 
Yeah. And the wake up call was we were never going to make money if we were just internet driven because pure internet business is not good unless it's enormous. It's got to be enormous scale and it takes a lot of paid in capital. And so we had this aha of like, you know what? Why would we ignore the wholesale opportunity? And who would we work with if we did? And I, I started dreaming about Nordstrom and, you know, I'd been to my first Nordstrom, maybe when I was 10 or 11, when you guys opened at Oak Brook Mall. Yeah. And I remember, you know, the piano player and it was <laughs> a big deal. And my parents were excited. They don't care about departments, you know, specialty retail. So yeah, then it was just magic when I came and visited with you guys. And that was really the pivot. 2012 was from internet for the win to, no, we need to be omni and we need to do this in a smarter way. So that that's essentially what will kind of bring the story along this timeline to what brought you to Nordstrom. You recognize over time that you needed a multifaceted approach to be able to grow your brand, right, as a retailer. So yeah. tell me what it was like, how you decided to partner with Nordstrom in those early conversations, yeah. what it was like. Because listening to you talk about, you know, what you were able to bring to the party with your level of enthusiasm, that must have worked tremendously well as you're finding investors but it had to have worked well, obviously, as you're finding partners, too. Totally. And I think that for me, one of the things luckily I've been OK at historically is being comfortable with having been wrong. And I get a charge out of that because I, I feel like there's opportunity in realizing when we were wrong about something. And so once I realized I was wrong in our narrative that the future was going to be like 100 percent e-commerce and zero percent stores you know, the software eats the world philosophy. It's like, well, what if software only eats half the world? <laughs> the other half is a lot. Whoa, there, that's a lot of revenue and total addressable market that is still being sold through brick and mortar. Yeah, I mean, it's even like today. I mean, you fast forward us today, you know, during the pandemic, we were more than 50% of our business was done online. And since stores reopened and got traction there again, we're now kind of the low 40s. But I don't know where this all balances out. Let's say it's 50-50, but that's kind of to your point. I mean, at a certain point, you realize it's not going guardrail to guardrail. There's still going to be a physical store thing that matters. Still going to be one. I mean, I was, I was in Palo Alto recently for my reunion, and in the day was cold. I had a blazer like this, and I realized, you know what, I need a vest because I'm cold. <laughs> And I had a hotel on Redwood City and I was on campus and I decided I was going to walk and I walked through Stanford Mall. And of course, I went to Nordstrom and I picked up this barber vest. <laughs> People are always going to be. It's a great vest, by the way. And uh, actually, the, the associate who I work with was terrific. Um, and that's never going to go away. You know, people are going to be cold and they're going to need to get something. So to your point, if it's 50-50, let's just say that's where it nets out then we're missing half the market if we don't figure out how to address it. And so when we figured out this kind of 1,000 to 2,000 square foot, small footprint, high experiential, fit to ship store where we didn't have to stock it, that was exciting. And I knew that it would probably take a decade to build a 100 store fleet. So once we realized that brick and mortar was going to be a part of our model, I didn't want to wait a decade to have national reach. So I thought, well, who takes care of the customer? Who pays on time? Who addresses a similar, you know, segment in the market? And the interesting thing about it was the only retailer I can think of was Nordstrom. And, you know, I think we pitched it as something that could be a pretty small business over three years. And as you know, we did much better together. And it really broadened our reach. I can remember opening a Bonobos guide shop and two people approached me, a father, son, and I kind of went to the son and I was like, how'd you hear about us? And it was sort of this fun thing where as I talked to him, he had discovered the brand through Nordstrom. And I think what I've come to tell entrepreneurs in my position is the best marketing for your business is wholesale. You know, the best way to commercialize your brand in the market is to sell it. So I think there are these moments where like you're first getting going and you think you're just doing everything differently. And then life and experience have a way of teaching you that you might be doing some new things, but that you're not as special maybe as you thought you were when you were getting started. You got you to pay attention to people that have been at this for a long time, and you really got to meld both of those things. And I think that's what the great companies do. That really tells the story of Bonobos and how you created this successful brand. But you also, at the same time, now you're several years into having a diagnosis and all this and not having episodes. So as you were going through and you, you were so busy, had so much going on, what was the, the next example of what happened in your life that made you realize, I've got you know, a mental illness issue that I've got to deal with here? Yeah, so 
the thing that emerged was for me the d- depression, the depressive side, where when I wasn't on, and it wasn't always easy to figure out what would happen. Maybe it would be a breakup. Maybe it would be a lull in uh, what was happening at the company. Funnily enough, it would tend to be actually when we'd raise money and things were going well that I would slip because there wasn't kind of an urgent crisis need to be on. If that makes sense, like it would be the times that should have been a chance to kind of take stock, sit back, focus, execute, maybe enjoy a little bit more balance where I actually would trend down. And so I would end up, Pete, with these like six week, three month depressive phases where it's hard to get to work and I wouldn't get out of bed on the weekend. And that's when I started to be like, something is really wrong here. I might spend 70 or 80% of the waking hours of the weekend asleep. Wow. So, you know, you wake up at nine and you feel like you've slept in a bit. You know, now I feel that way. You wake up at noon and you feel like maybe you're a teenager or you're parting hard. You wake up at 5 p.m. and you know something's just wrong. Right. Right. And I would do that. I would wake up at 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, both days. And it's so weird to sleep that long. And I felt like I couldn't tell anyone. I didn't want to name it because to name it as what it was, which in retrospect was pretty clearly depression and depressive moods would have been to acknowledge that this ghost in the background of this diagnosis from, you know, 10 years earlier had been accurate. And so I spent a few years kind of riding these. um, It wasn't like my mood was changing within a day. It wasn't like that at all. That was part of why I think I was good at hiding it. It was these long kind of on spells with long off spells. And my team came to know me as a kind of a slingshot CEO you know, here's Andy coming in with all these ideas and thoughts and he's really present. And now wait, where did he go? He's checked out. And then it wasn't until 2016 that I had a second recurrence on the high side. I had this manic episode for the first time, really, since I'd been in college where I was hospitalized for a week at Bellevue Hospital. At that point, I was 36 at 600 employees. The company had been in business for nine years. I had a great, potentially, you know, enduring romantic partner for the first time in my life. My family was clear-eyed about it. Everyone rallied around me. And as I came out of Bellevue, I was finally ready to deal with it. And I walked straight into handcuffs. And I was arrested for felony and misdemeanor assault from violence that had occurred during the manic episode. And as you might imagine, you know, the next year was really tough figuring out, was I going to get healthy? Was I going to be able to make this relationship work? Or was my girlfriend going to leave me? Was I going to lose my job? And even just that 48 hours after I got out of Bellevue, I had to figure out a legal you know, solution for me. I had to hire an attorney, hire a crisis PR firm in case it came out. I'd do a board call and talk about what had happened. I had to disclose to the board. And but the it didn't come out, team. did it? In that time, did that come out publicly? I don't remember that being out there. No, it didn't come out. And I think I have no idea what the world would look like if it had, because the problem in this modern day and age is the headline is the story. Right. And so I think with the kind of clickbait nature of the world that we live in, you can imagine the headline wouldn't have said, partly because I hadn't even figured it out yet, that I'd had a mental health episode during which I'd been violent. It might have just flipped the script immediately to, you know, CEO of brand named for peace loving, you know, great apes is a domestic abuser. Right. And I and I lived for at least a year waiting for that shoe to drop. You know, I was in and out of the courtroom with my mom. The case was ultimately, you know, sealed and expunged and all that stuff. Thanks to the remarkable role that my now wife and mother-in-law played in saying they were clear-eyed that this was a mental health issue that I was dealing with. And my mother-in-law sat me down afterwards and said, you know, Andy, this is no different than diabetes. You've just got to take care of yourself as long as you see a doctor and take your medication you know, I'm good with you being with my daughter if she so chooses. But if you don't, you're out, you know? <laughs> so it wasn't, it was acceptance, but with accountability. It wasn't unconditioned. Right. And so I felt Pete obliged to get healthy in service of, you know, this relationship on behalf of the people that I loved. And vis-a-vis the company, I didn't want to let bonobos down either. I didn't want to tarnish the company's reputation And once the board, I thought they might say, hey, you should step down. Once they kind of heard the game plan and the fact that I was seeing a doctor twice a week and had taken all these steps, 
you know, it wasn't like I came and said, I'm in crisis and my life is falling apart. And what do we do? I came and said, here's what happened. It's really hard to talk about this, but this is what happened. Here's the game plan. And, you know, do you, do you want me to go do it? And it was remarkable that the board said yes. And we, we did it. And it, as unbelievable as it sounds, we ended up, you know, running a process within a year and sold the company for over $300 million. And, you know, 2017 was a remarkable year. I'd figured out the medication. Manuela had stayed with me. She married me. We had the 10-year anniversary of the company. We had this exit. Converted to Judaism, which is my wife's culture of origin. Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> for the first time in 108 years, I was at Game 7. And it was this magical year, and only about 20 people knew. Did the people at Walmart know anything about this? I mean, this is a big deal, them buying this company, and you know, and you're kind of going along for the ride as a person that's going to help usher in a new era of this kind of business, Walmart, did that come up? It did, yeah. I felt obliged and, you know, and duty-bound to disclose it. And there was a point in the process where I needed to because they were going to do uh, background checks. And so a lot of people now ask me, what's the right way or the right moment to be vulnerable, right, or to disclose these things? And my choice with Walmart was, let's walk through this process without them having to think about this. I don't want to throw the potential transaction off. Let's evaluate it on the merits. But then before we consummate it, let's, you know, like, let's talk about it. And I shared with the HR business partner, hey, you know, I know you're about to run background checks. Here's what you might find on me. Here's why. Here's what happened to me. And she turned, you know, white as a ghost. Um, <laughs> but she said the right thing. She said, Andy, I understand these things happen. They're common. Let me talk to Doug McMillan, who's the CEO of Walmart. And I had a a real pins and needles couple weeks. And they came back and said, hey, you know, can you send your medical records to an outside psychiatrist on our side? And I said, of course. And I talked to my doctor and and I was with my doctor one day and I said, hey, who did they send him to? And he goes, uh, the former head of psychiatry for the FBI. And I was like, okay, you know, not messing around. Yeah. And then I was another two weeks and they came back and said, hey, we got the news that you're in treatment, that you're on medication, that you're taking care of yourself. And we're all just so relieved because we're eager to get working together. And wow, that acceptance by a company that didn't need to have anything to do with us. It was a really healing thing for me. I wish that for everyone, that they would find their workplace so accepting of who they are. Did that literally change you as a friend, as a husband and you know family member? a business person, did it affect all of that? I'll tell you what, Pete, it is, it inspires so much loyalty when you hold a secret that you think would be a reason that someone would run for the hills, whether it's Walmart in a transaction or my then girlfriend and now wife in a relationship. When someone stays with you for something that you have internalized as a stain on who you are, it's very healing. It feels like redemptive of, wait, this wasn't my fault. You know what I mean? Like what would be my fault would be not dealing with it. Right. And I guess what I don't want for other people is the 16 years of untreated and unmedicated is not good. And the 22 year wait between being able to share more broadly with loved ones and whoever you so choose, that's too long to wait. So I think we need to figure out as a society and as a culture, and I think businesses can lead the way, how do we turn mental illness disclosure into being no different than physical illness disclosure? Right. You know, how do we celebrate, you know, neurodiversity? And it's not just bipolar disorder, right? It's, there's all kinds of issues with panic and anxiety. There's ADHD, there's Asperger's, there's autism, all these things that affect people who quote unquote don't have a diagnosis, whether that's grief or addiction it's hard to make it through life and to be able to say I had no, you know, the whole way I had a clean bill of mental health, right? So no family is untouched. Like, I, I mean, I can't even tell you the number of messages people who have, who are suffering right now, who have suffered, who have a family member who has suffered or is, who have family members who are gone, you know, and with bipolar disorder specifically, bipolar one, you know, the suicide attempt rate 60% and the suicide rates 20%. And if you look at my inbox, that's not surprising. I'll keep this confidential in terms of the name, but I just got this email. Andy, we've never met. I've just finished your book and it forced me to reckon with my ghost. 
I booked my first psychiatrist appointment in the last four years and I'm trying to be more honest. Thank you infinitely. And the subject line says your book will probably save my life. Well, that's got to make you feel you know? great. I mean, it's it's more interesting than pants. Let's put it that way. You know, I spent 13 <laughs> years selling pants and talking about pants and I'm like proud of everything that we built at Bonobos and that journey and the digital innovation and all of it. But I do now sometimes feel like that was a vehicle in part to get to this this next chapter of having a chance to tell, you know, the story at the intersection of that startup story and the mental health journey. And really, you know, to your point about what section, it's about love and family too. You know, the 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 story is about you know, the village of people that are affected in our lives and all the the people that have to come together to get someone in crisis through it. And that's not unique to mental health, but it is particularly acute when the person experiencing the problem doesn't know that they are, right? If you don't know you're a patient while you're experiencing it, it makes it so much harder for everyone else than if you, you know you are and you're kind of along for the, the ride with them. These are issues where they're hard enough to deal with without the conversation. You know, imagine having someone in your family diagnosed with cancer and saying, let's not talk about that for 16 years. <laughs> let's be okay with the fact that they have that and they're not in treatment. Let's hope it doesn't kill them. You know what I mean? Who would do that? Like if you had a family member just in abject denial, you know, that would be a critical issue of discussion, sure. whether it goes well or not. And somewhere in everyone's family is is a story and generally on our own life journeys something's going to be difficult for from a mental health management standpoint even if it's a temporal thing it touches us all right so andy you, know, you talked about how the medication and then getting treatment stuff with a doctor how that's been a big part of your journey to manage this this condition that you have what else in your life has allowed you or has enabled you to deal with this in a way that's, you know, to, again, be the person you want to be and pursue the things that are of interest to you and have the life you want to have? Yeah, there's actually four ingredients uh, that I focus on, two we've talked about. First is it's a non-negotiable for me to see my doctor at least once a week, and usually it's twice. And he is both a psychiatrist and a therapist, which is a privilege to have someone like him so that I don't have to separate the pharmacological conversation around medication from the talk therapy around, hey, just what's going on in your life. Number two, and equally you know, tied in with that is the medication. So I used to resist the idea of needing to take medication. And for now, it's like brushing my teeth. You know, like I take the same medication every day. That's kind of my, my day-to-day ride or die. And then I have four others in the hopper that we can kind of dial in. He helps dial up or down, depending on where I am on that uh, mood continuum. Third is sleep. You know, sleep is such a huge either trigger or symptom for me. And so I actually, and this is thanks to my mom, have a process around it, which is I have a sleep report that comes off my Fitbit every morning. I screenshot it and I actually text it to a WhatsApp group that has my doctor, my wife, my mom, and my sister. So everyone knows where sleep is going for me. And it's really clear if it's going up, I'm headed towards a depressive state. And if it's going down, it's potentially hypomanic and God forbid manic state. And so that's core and all the things we need to do to try to get good sleep go into that, whether that's needing medication at certain points, winding down, getting off the phone, making sure that the morning flight isn't booked for five in the morning. So sleep is three. And then four is transparency with people that love me about how I'm doing and how I'm feeling. And I think talking to a therapist and a doctor, that's great because that's an objective mental health professional. But we also need to tell our loved ones about how we're feeling and, you know, metabolize and synthesize those emotions and have those conversations and not hide, which is what I did for so long. You know, don't hide feeling low. Don't hide having ideas about buying an almond farm in Portugal you know, be transparent on both sides of the mood continuum. And and that's the fourth piece. That's really interesting. Thank you. 
Well, look, Andy, I just want to let you know how much uh, I admire you and appreciate your courage and your candor. Just having this discussion with me today, I feel like I've learned some things and expanded my appreciation of what all this means, how it impacts all of us. And I I just, again, I applaud you for uh, the vulnerability to be willing to do this. So thank you. No, thank you. You made it easy. Now we're going to stop into our Merrick Park store in Florida to chat with Nikki Oliva, who works in the lingerie department there. And like many of our employees that I've spoken with on the Naughty Pod, Nikki really goes beyond the transactional nature of her job and makes some incredible connections with the women that she interacts with. So I'm just really glad she's with us. I'm proud of what she's doing, and I'm happy to highlight her here on this show. I really appreciate you talking to me today. So Thank you. No, it's my pleasure. At, at the Merrick Park store in beautiful Miami. It's hot down here. It's nice. We'll change the pace of the weather for a guy like me from Seattle. But, you know, it's it's been so fun just getting a chance to meet people here and see the enthusiasm doing the state of the company meetings, listen to people's questions. And uh, and Manola was nice enough to say, you really should talk to Nikki for your podcast. So I'm really <laughs> interested to hear your story, Nikki. So I started working in the lingerie department. I got certified as a prosthesis. My mother has cancer. So I started traveling with the cancer centers and kind of learning about prosthesis. And I really loved the prosthesis service here in North Sherman. I used to talk about it all the time outside of work. I would go to the cancer center and I would find customers to come to Nordstrom. And so one day- I tell you that whole prosthesis program, you know, we've done it for a long time. And it's kind of like this hidden thing that we do that not a ton of people know about it, but the people that do know about it have been helped and served by it are just immensely appreciative. It's, I mean, the amount of positive feedback we've had about that program over the years is incredible. You cannot imagine how many people does, does not know that we offer that service here. Yeah. And, and wherever I travel with my mom for any type of chemo, I always mention. And as a salesperson at the lingerie department, I sold a lot to people that weren't even looking for a prosthesis fitting, which I could tell they, they had mm-hmm. their, their surgeries. And to me, that was a great experience because I would make that person happy. And I, I think it's something that is going to grow if we continue getting the word out there to the point that we have our plastic surgeon came and sit down for 30 minutes to hear about the service right? down the street from here. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's fun. It's fun. The prosthesis services at Nordstrom is fun. And not a lot of people. I've know. never heard someone describe it as fun before. It's, but fun. I, <laughs> it's fun when you see it from a perspective of my family that my mother yeah. has cancer. When my mother had breast cancer too. I can relate to that. And my mom was very appreciative that yeah. a store that we grew up in, we, my mother shops here at least twice a week. So for her as a Nordstrom customer, knowing that she could help all her other friends feel pretty, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big thing. And uh, so I had an experience with a customer last week in which she felt very ugly. She didn't want to, she had this first time that she was going to go to a private event here in South Florida for a women's uh, association here in Coral Gables. And um, she didn't want to wear Zimmerman. She was, she believed that she was too old for Zimmerman. She tells me, well, you know, I, I don't want to buy this clothes. I said, why don't you put it on? Let me give you the right lingerie items and bring you the right items for you to look pretty. And you're going to see how gorgeous you're going to look after. And uh, she sent me, I actually have pictures. She sent me pictures of her fundraising when all the women's clubs said how nice she looked. And then she was amazing. I have texts and emails from her, how amazing she felt. She felt young and pretty and fresh. I said, well, just recommend us to your friends. (laughs) That sounds great. So do you have any other customer stories? I have a prosthesis story. Okay. Um, A young lady, she really impacted me. she didn't want to take off her clothes. I said, listen, I'm used to this. I kind of explained to her about my mother. And um, she said, I'm 36 years old and I, have, I had terminal uh, breast cancer. I'm surviving. I said, well, let me help you through the experience of being able to put a pretty bra and feel sexy. And she started crying. I'm like, I was holding myself on not to cry with her because I didn't want her to continue feeling unhappy. I said, look. I'm gonna bring you a couple of items that's gonna make you look gorgeous. And nobody's even gonna notice that you have no breasts. And I did, 
And that was back in 2000, before the pandemic. And I still stay in touch with her. She always sends me pictures of Ross's she's going to buy. I said, why don't you come over to Merrick Park? Let's get new items. She says, well, you know, I'm not driving very much. And I understand when they're under chemo, they don't feel good. And I got her in touch with one of our managers here so they could sell her lingerie. And she's very happy there. And that's that was my prosthesis. Well, you talk about the customer being super vulnerable. That's tough. I mean, that's, you know, so much of what we do when we interact with customers help them gets personal, but not nearly at the level of what you're describing with someone that's coming in with prosthesis. So tell me, like, what brings you joy in your job? What brings me joy is to see the customer leaving happy. She's confident that once she purchases the items from me, she's going to feel wonderful. She's going to look pretty. That she has the ability to leave the store with a happy face. That's great. Nikki, thanks so much for sharing your story with me. Thank you. And thanks for doing such a great job for our customers. I appreciate it. Thank you for your pleasure. It's a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordypod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down to catch up with my brother, Eric. You know, it's interesting that, you know, three boys, the wrestling around and kind of the physical dominance thing was part of our dynamic. I, th- I think dad recollects that we were really hard on you. And The story he's cling to, <laughs> to this day, like the only, I swear it's the story he brings out the most, is that you locked me underneath the stairs. You rolled him up in a carpet yes. and you locked him underneath the stairs. My kids are horrified. <laughs> My kids get a kick out of that one too. What, what do they think of, of, of their dad being like, the, why weren't you the ni- torturer? Why weren't you nicer to Uncle Eric? He seems so nice. <laughs> I think you'll enjoy getting to hear more about what it's like running the business with my brother, how it was different when our older brother Blake was here, and how Eric and I end up crashing a children's music recital to show off his newfound guitar skills. All that and more on the next episode of The Nordy Pod. Mm-hmm.